We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome back to uh, the Gregorian Chant Academy, everyone. Today is our first interview, and we have a very special guest and good friend, Father Chad Ripperger. Uh, welcome, Father Ripperger. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so if somebody's watching this on Census Fidelium, most everybody there knows who you are. But on my channel, there might be people who don't know who you are. So to give a little introduction to those who are uh, not familiar with you, um, how long have you been a priest now? Uh, 23 years. 23 years. And you were ordained in the Fraternity of St. Peter? I was. And I'm technically speaking still incarnated in the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter until uh, until if the society that the bishops have asked me to get off the ground, if it uh, does get finally established, then I'll be tra uh, transitioning into it. Otherwise, if it doesn't work out, then I go back to the fraternity. Okay. Um, and how long ago did you become an exorcist? Uh, Fifteen years ago is when I first uh, started. I started doing some deliverance work, um, blessing of houses and things like that, uh, like a couple of years before that. But the first solemn case of exorcism I had was about uh, 15 years ago. Okay. And <clears throat> so you were already an exorcist then when you were pastor here at St. John's. That's correct. I, okay. Uh, was actually I didn't do much by uh, in the diocese there in uh, in in the diocese of Boise, but um, I did fly back from time to time to the diocese where I was still doing some uh, processes, some cases. I also was training um, exorcists here and there at the time because I was one of the few guys that was out there. So um, and then um, obviously once I left there, I started doing it full time. Okay. And um, <clears throat> you have a doctorate's degree in Thomistic theology, is that correct? Uh, actually, no. My doctorate's in philosophy. It's in Tho okay. and I, I did write my dissertation in the area of Thomism, so I am considered Thomist. I do have a master's um, in um, theology as well, which is different from an MDiv. Most guys get MDivs. I didn't get an MDiv. I actually got a master's, so I did get that as well in theology. And you've written a couple of books on psychology. Uh, but is my understanding, do you or do you not have a degree in psychology? Or if you don't, is that just a matter of paperwork? Uh, yeah, at this point, it's kind of one of those things where um, all I'd have to do is complete like one or two classes and I could get the degree. But I, um, at a certain point, uh, realizing what it was, I shifted my focus towards studying Thomas from a Thomistic point of view. That is, for, or, uh, psychology from a Thomistic point of view, I started studying St. Thomas's understanding of it. Um, and then 
since uh, the time I've been writing and studying it, I've been paying particularly close attention to things like brain studies, uh, things that actually where the science is uh, has some authenticity or credibility because a lot of the modern psychology was uh, a little strange. It's shifting now. It's even since I first when I first got in the psychology has changed significantly because um, a lot of the basic psychological schools like Jungianism and Freudianism are pretty much out now. There's there's more of a shift towards things like cognitive therapy, which ha is actually beneficial in many ways. It's still somewhat limited, but um, so there's there's a shift and uh, which is actually good, at least in the so far as it's helped the, the psychological community is getting better, I think. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, having uh, an understanding of psychology can be helpful in uh, dealing with exorcisms, being able to understand whether it's a uh, neurological disorder or some right. actual kind of uh, possession of some sort. So. Right, and they, they are distinctive. To the untrained eye, they'll look very similar, but actually once you know um, the patterns that you'll see in relationship to something that's psychological as opposed to something that's diabolic or even a mixture, the patterns are very distinct once you know what you're looking for, so it does come in. It's very beneficial in the work I'm doing. All right. Well, uh, there we go. That's uh, got our introduction out of the way. Um, so now, like I was saying, uh, today being a hectic day, I don't. I wasn't able to print out my list of questions, so I'll see if I can remember them off the top of my head here. So mm -hmm. the first one um, is in regards to the power that Gregorian chant has over the demonic. So St. Athanasius you know, tells us in his letter to Marcellinus on his interpretation of the Psalms, he makes a statement towards the end, which he says, um, by chanting the Psalms, a man will overthrow the devil and drive away the demons. That's right. Uh, St. John uh, Climacus, St. John the Latter, makes a similar statement saying that chanting of the Psalms is a weapon. Uh, right. In the Old Testament, we see King Saul. Now, uh, technical terminology here, was King Saul uh, oppressed, obsessed, or possessed? Um, I, you know, to be honest with you, I haven't looked at it close enough to actually make a determination, um, to be honest with you. But I Afflicted think it is some sort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There's some, obviously some extraordinary diabolic influence. Um, I, if I remember right, one of the one of the exorcists thought he, that I talked to thought he was actually possessed. But, you know, that's something I haven't looked at that closely. OK, well, in any case, he's 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 King Saul is in some way afflicted by this demon. King right. David plays his harp and presumably sings his psalms, and this right. chases away the demon. Right. We also have in the New Testament some various cases of, in the lives of the saints. St. Patrick, for instance, he's not necessarily chanting the psalms, but a psalm-like prayer, his lorica or breastplate of St. Patrick, which disguises him from the enemies as a him and his people as a herd of, uh, of uh, deer. Right. And then St. Padre Pio is being physically uh, attacked by a demon, he calls on his guardian angel, and his guardian angel comes over, starts flying around singing, and this chases the demon away. So, right. as an exorcist, what can you tell us directly about what this kind of power that Gregorian chant has over the demonic? And then as a Thomist, why? Um, yeah, actually, it does have a profound impact. In our sessions, very often, if the case uh, protracts for any length of time, what we will do is... Um, we'll play various chants in the background just loud enough so that the demon can hear it, but it's not loud enough to where it's over um, my particular voice. Um, a lot of times we'll also sing various Marian 
um, great chance, and a lot of times that itself will, uh, they'll react to specific ones of those. But at a, at a certain stage when we're praying the different chants, we'll come across one that he that really does bother him and annoys him, and then we'll try and get the information out of him. Why does it bother you? But then what we'll do is we'll play that over and over and over again in the background, just loud enough so he hears it. And we have found that that has um, a weakening effect on them. It also, sometimes I'll actually require them, so like every time the Alleluia is sung, they have to reverence the cross or something. And so they have to actually pay attention to it. And that actually has a significant impact um, to in relationship to them. As far as why it actually has an impact, um, I think it boils down to a few things. One, obviously the Psalms themselves are sacred. Um, because they're part of scripture, they were inspired by uh, God in relationship to uh, King David when he, he, he inspired him to write them. Um, and then those Psalms contain obviously things about God, um, even about the demons themselves, etc. And so the content itself is revulsive to them. Then when you sing it, you solemnize it, you actually make it more solemn. It be, uh, the beauty of the chant um, is added to the uh, actual psalms or the thing that you're are singing and as a result of that that beauty is also revulsive to them because in their choice they chose um uh to be to they chose evil basically which is ugly and so when they hear that chant it's 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 bothersome to them and so it uh and so that it'll actually um it'll actually drive them out those two things become something that actually drives them out um the uh the, the other side of it is too is is that um the chant also, they, they don't want us listening to it because it actually has an ordering effect for us and our faculty. So the fact that the chant is orderly or rightly ordered also <clears throat> bothers them. One of the things that we do is when people come to us and they want um, for me to be able to pray with them at some point, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just help, we'll put people on what we call the protocol, which is basically um, a series of prayers, but then we also have them play chant in the, at a very low level where they can just barely hear it, but we have them play it in their house um, all the time. And so what we've found is a lot of times that will drive the demons out, um, very similar to what one demon said about bells, that bells actually drive the demons out, especially when the bells are blessed in the old rite, the exercise bells, that sound actually the sound itself is revulsive to them and it actually drives them out of the air drives them out of the, the location and so we found that that um playing chant in a low level in the background not only does it have a calming effect on people because it's uh, because of the orderliness of it as a form of music but it also then has that effect of driving the demons out and so a lot of times we've cleaned up houses or clean, people themselves once they do these prayers and do that a lot of times just get cleaned up and we don't have to see them so it has a it has a, a, a quite a bit of an impact in our work. Wow. Um, okay, so then that leads into second question. I'm trying to remember what the second question was. Uh, I, I actually have them before me. Do you want me to read it for you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the the next one is Gregorian chant falls in the category of public vocal prayer, which is of course the lowest of the nine levels. Yet the Mass and Divine Office, objectively speaking, are, are two of the greatest and most efficacious prayers. There seems to be an apparent contradiction. Uh, and um, sorry, uh, let's see. There seems to be an apparent contradiction. How can the Mass and Divine Office be the lowest and highest forms of prayer? Can you clarify this? There is a distinction between the nature of the prayer and the efficacy of the prayer. 
as to the nature of the prayer, um, the divine office and the mass are done as a form of vocal prayer. And the reason it's done that, and even in the old rite, there's a section where it's done quietly, so it's a form of meditation. And the reason they do that is, um, even though those are the two lowest forms of prayer, is because they want to be able to make sure that it's accessible to all people. So whereas if you have forms of prayer that are much higher, it's going to be much more difficult for people to achieve those. And so they wouldn't be able to um, have that um, uh, volitional and intellectual participation or interior participation in those things. That So that's the form. So the form is true is the lowest. But because of the nature of what you're doing in the, in, in the mass where you're, um, you know, you're representing the Calvary sacrifice, but then also in the divine office, there's a, it's kind of interesting because the divine office has some very specific effects that we've seen as exorcists. But the um, those the, because they are the uh, prayer of the church, and because they are the prayer, uh, the mass contains the Calvary sacrifice. Even though the form of the prayer is the lowest, its efficacy because of those other two things is much higher. It's, in fact, the mass is the highest as forms of the efficacy. So that it's it has to do more with the effect because of these uh, other elements that are actually part of it and so um the uh and this is this is an important thing to remember because of the fact that a lot of times people don't want to engage in those because they think that they should be pursuing higher prayer it's a funny because even the saints that reach the highest prayers like Teresa of Avila and john of the cross still went to mass still did their office as a foundational uh, aspect in fact they always say that the vocal prayer is the foundational is always a foundation upon which one must maintain one's prayer life, even if one is in the highest levels of prayer, like the transforming or conforming unions. Right. And I, I you know, uh, in regard to to singing um, the the psalms or singing the praises of God, I don't know how theologically um, what the theology behind it is, but I remember reading somewhere that Saint Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, believed that uh, Adam and Eve before the fall only sang to God, and then it was only after the fall that they started speaking. That would be interesting. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that being the case, then I think I'm remembering the third question. So, uh, how important then is uh, the study and singing of Gregorian chant among lay people? Um, mm -hmm. And especially among the young, and what kind of spiritual benefits can come from that? I, I think there's twofold. I think the the uh, the first is by the by, especially the younger people by learning the chant, they they learn what rightly ordered music actually is, the structure of it, um, and as a result of that, it has a, a a habituating effect on their faculties, so that it provides two things: one, it helps them to see right order in music. The second, and then the second part of it is, is by that it also has a rightly ordering effect on their own lower faculties, so that they'll uh, they'll find greater peace in by doing that. So there's there's just that's just on a formational level. I think it has it has a great benefit, and I think this is true even of of adults. Educationally, obviously, you know, learning chant is also a segue into learning other forms of music and things of mm -hmm. that sort. Um, but I also think that the hymns and the when you learn the chant, you also learn the content of the hymns much more readily. They're, it sticks in your mind, and so it's much easier. I mean, that's the whole thing with phonics, right? That you right. sing the thing in order to remember it. And I think this helps people to remember, um, you know, the the various Marian hymns, the various hymns that the are even like when I was a kid, they would 
they would chant. Um, we would go to mass and they would have exposition and they would chant the litany of the saints, you know, and that helped me to remember a lot of those things. Um, right. And so that's it, it. It has a great educational effect, I think, just on that level that it provides um, again that right order, but it also provides a mechanism by which they actually learn various tenets of the faith, various things about Our Lady, um, also ways of um, praying in a certain sense, because the chant um, is a form of prayer, and so it helps people to learn how to pray as well. Yeah, and, and you know, St. Ambrose, of course, used that as part of his catechesis, you know, writing writing his hymns in order to teach the, the faithful, uh, the, the catechism of the church. Right, exactly. And it also, you know, historically, too, the church would also encourage the lay people to learn the common parts of the Mass, too. Um, so they could pray the common part, they could sing the common parts um, under certain circumstances. But also just even like, and when you do, when you go do the, um, like the processions, doing processions, you know, with the Blessed Sacrament or on certain feast days, knowing the various hymns and stuff helps the people to enter into the, um, that feast in a much more, um, uh, you know, in a, in a better fashion than they would if they were just sitting there idly listening. Sure. And then I can imagine that, you know, if um, if if the, the, the singing of the praises of God and this, this chanting of the Psalms and whatnot has this uh, spiritual effect, not just on uh, against the, the demons, but then also in properly ordering our own souls and bodies and uh, disposing us towards virtue that when you have the whole mass of congregation, you know, all joining in and singing uh, yeah. what kind of spiritual benefits that has when all of their prayers and chanting are put together, you know. That's right, yeah. That would have uh, a lot more. Yeah, more it has, it, yeah, it does. It has a, a tremendous unifying effect in relationship to the people. And I think that that's one of the things that's important, especially because Today, people are so fractured given our culture, but even within the church, there's so much fracturing, whereas the music, when it's done properly, especially the chant, when the people are able to chant together and they all do it together, there's a unification that people get a sense of, which I think is important. Yeah. And just so anybody listening isn't confused, of course, you know, we're not talking about everybody singing the propers of the propers, mass, but right. the things which are proper to the congregation, such as the, the ordinary and uh, right. the hymns and, uh, like you said, in procession, you know, the litany of the saints and whatnot, things like that. So right. The chants which are proper to the congregation. So. Right. Um, so then the, the fourth question about the efficacy of, of this chanting, you know, St. Augustine says that um, those who sing well pray twice. Right. And, of course, uh, I was asked that, uh, you know, because I, I made a, a video on what is prayer, you know, explaining Thomas Aquinas, you know, okay, well, you know, he says, you know, in order for prayer to be prayer, it needs to come from charity, humility, you need faith, uh, piety, perseverance, all these things, right. and a certain amount of attention. And so I was asked, well, everything being equal, uh, do you gain double the merit if you sing a prayer rather than recite it? <laughs> and of course, I'm no theologian, so... Uh, what's a theological explanation of that? Um, okay, yeah. Uh, first, let's presume all the things are being equal, obviously. Right. So we're here, we're presuming that you're saying it with the same devotion, the same attention, sure. and all that that you would normally win. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because the theolo throughout history, as you know, that uh, line from St. Augustine that he who sings well prays twice, 
that that has um, been so often repeated. I don't know if anybody's ever really given an analysis about, you know, what, how much, um, how much does it really add? To be honest with you, my own anal- my own thoughts on the on the on it is it really depends on a few things. So obviously, the efficacy of our prayer is based upon partly the interior dispositions, but then there's the exterior, the execution of it. And because, and this is something I kind of go into in my article on the merit of a mass, that the externals actually have a direct contribution to the merit that the prayer can actually have. And so if we surround our prayer with the right kinds of merit, in this case it was the mass, but we can also say this with chant. So the chant, depending on the solemnity of the chants, because as you know, there's different solemnities of the chant. There's also, um, uh, because some chants are more solemn than others, there's also some are more ornate than others, etc. So I think some of the qualities can change how efficacious it is. I think that in St. Augustine's mind, though, what he was really trying to do is not just, it's not just in the external singing, although I think that plays a role. So, so different chants have different degrees by which they're going to merit. Ultimately, we don't know. God would have to, you know, reveal it to us in some way or show it to us. But I think what St. Augustine was really showing is, is that um, this external, by, by the person seeing this external solemnity, that, um, and they, they're intending to do so, that the efficacy of their prayer is, um, you know, in a certain sense, it's doubled because of the fact that it's not just the prayer now. Now it's this solemnity to add. So there's this additional right. thing. And so I think that's kind of the mind behind it. Um, and so, I mean, it's obviously not an exact thing that, oh, I said one Hail Mary, so now it's, got, it's worth two Hail Marys. It's not quite <laughs> like that. Right. But I think it is. But I just I do think it obviously adds significantly to the efficacy of the prayer that a person says in this particular case that like the mass and the various chants. Sure. Okay. That 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 uh, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't quite sure uh, how to how to answer that myself. <laughs> I thought, man, I I think it just kind of depend on a, on a whole bunch of circumstances, and you know, and as friends, I mean, you know, in in one circumstance, you might gain more merit by singing it, but it, you know, might be the wrong time and place. In, right. And so, exactly. Uh. So, I you know, but that that makes sense too. Joining the internal to the external. Um, in a more solemn form than, you know. Right, which I think singing helps us to do, right? I mean, singing does sure. help us to to uh, more voluntarily and more easily enter into the external um, uh, execution of the prayer. So I think that's one of its real benefits. <clears throat> and it makes it more delightful, I think, ultimately, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how, you know, if somebody somebody may not be um, drawn and interested to, pr- to, to prayer, but but when you offer you know a, a beautiful form of music, just like somebody may not want to go to mass, but when when those uh, the external uh, the externals are beautiful, it gives a little bit more of an incentive. It draws them into to the prayer, and and the, I think the chant can do that too. Right, I agree. Yeah. Um, so the 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 final question um, seems a little bit uh, off topic, but um the um among the religious orders those who are most devoted to um the celebrating the fullness of the liturgy and the singing and composition and transcribing of the chant are the benedictines and the benedictines are also the ones who have given us uh, this great sacramental medal the saint benedict medal um 
as an exorcist, what can you tell us about uh, the, um, uh, the, the power and influence and protection this metal can provide for us? Um, there's different levels to it. The first is, is um, just a, by the reason why it's actually efficacious is because of the blessing that the church gives to it is actually there's an exorcism and a blessing that's included in it and you actually are asking God through this blessing to cause the demons to flee. So it's just, it's as a sacramental, the blessing um, is specifically ordered towards that. In theology, we say you uh, prayer begets what it signifies, which basically means what you ask for is what you're going to get. So if you have this blessed in the old rite, which is a, it's salt long, a lot of priests don't like to do it because it takes it takes close to ten minutes to bless one, right. which is why I trained you a lot of them at once. But <laughs> uh, but they but uh, that blessing. What you're going to ask is what you're going to get for, and so it has that that prayer. When you're you, when you have the sacramental, the demon when he sees that knows the full context of the prayer that's said on that, and he knows it, and so that itself has a has has an efficacy. And then of course it contains characters and letters, etc., that um, are also refer, uh, a reference to a desire and, and a prayer basically to drive the demons out. So that's part of the, that's why it's efficacious. Okay, so there's that, but in context of um, in our work, we very often tell people to, um, you know, if you're going to buy a house or bless a house, put um, Benedict medals in the four corners or put them over the, the um, doors. We found that to be efficacious to keep the demons kind of out of people's houses, especially if they've had problems in the house in the past. Um, I suppose you could say if you have teenagers, you'd probably want even more. <laughs> But uh, but I think that the um, but then we also will tell people to put it in like if you own um, a, a sizable piece of land, put the Benedict medals in the four corners of the property, and it creates kind of like this invisible fence, so to speak. Um, and uh, the um, but we also use them in um, session during sessions. So um, my my goal eventually is to get a chair made of Benedict. The whole chair just made. <laughs> Benedict medals, and so that forcing the person or the demon to sit on the chair, you know, would drive him nuts. But, um, eventually, at some point, I'll get around to doing that. It's actually not that difficult of a thing to do, but um, it's just a matter of time. But then I, the other thing is we have um, Benedictine crosses where the, you have the cross, but then you have a Benedictine medal that's in the middle, and that's the primary cross. So you'll see exorcists, well, you'll see pictures of exorcists holding a cross up. We use we use specifically a, um, a Benedictine cross for that very reason, because we found it's actually more efficacious. And then when you put the cross on them, where the where it crosses on them, you can put it like on their forehead so that the not only is the cross, but that the Benedictine medal is also there. So we have found that it's um, it's um, among the sacramentals. It's one of, it's one of the most efficacious. Um, you know, wh what, how sensitive a particular demon is to it depends on his sin and the dynamics of the case. So, um, but if we find out that he's sensitive to it, um, we will basically make him, um, you know, reverence it and, and things of that sort. Another thing that we you would do too is with people who are possessed, the possession is always in a particular part of the body. And so what we would do is, is we, if it's, um, um, you know, if it's in a part of the body that's like underneath a garment, we would tell, we would best the Benedict medals and have them pin that to that part of the garment so that it's laying up against the part that the person that is possessed. 
And so um, it depends. Sometimes people say, well, I could do it for a couple of hours, but then I just couldn't do it anymore because the, the demon's, you know, reacting to this thing being there. And, and if he has to keep looking at it for long periods of time, eventually it's going to weaken him. So that's another thing that we'll very often do with them. So there, it's a very efficacious uh, um, uh, sacramental. I usually rec I really do recommend people always have one on them at all times. Sometimes you can even get rosaries made of them. Yeah, I've seen that where the, every single bead on there is a St. Benedict medal. Yeah, those are awesome. I like those. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for all my questions here. So um, what, what if people want to um, donate to your order, what, what is your order called and, and where can they go for that? It's called the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother. Um, you can just go to our website, which is delorens.org, which is D-O-L-O-R-A-N-S.org. And um, we have a variety of different ways in which they can donate. Right now, our main thing that we're trying to raise money for is we're um, raising money for a chapel. We think we might have secured most of the donations, but at this point... Um, the main thing that we are now trying to raise money for is decorum on the inside so that we can have, um, even though the structure and everything is classical style, it's um, um, neo-Gothic basically is the style because we can't do full Gothic because we, <laughs> we don't have that kind of money. But uh, yeah. but it's going to be it's going to be you know high vaulted ceiling and the whole bit. But it's um, but now at this point we're just um, uh, any money further money that we raise will go towards beautification of the interior of the chapels. So if people would like to donate, we would be uh, very appreciative. Okay. And then <clears throat> you also have a separate website of uh, uh, material. Is it, is it census um, traditionis? So, or? That, that's right. Census traditionis, which is, which is my, uh, my own website, which has um, all of my conferences in audio format. The video formats are on YouTube, uh, which is in census fidelium, as you know. Um, there are some also other videos that I've done in other locations that aren't on census uh, fidelium, which are available there. Um, and then there's also some written materials as well. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, happy belated Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way. Yes, which was yesterday. <laughs> um, yes. As we uh, uh, close here, would you mind giving us a blessing? Sure. Benedictio de omnipotentis, patris et fili, et spiritus et et semper. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. <clears throat> You're welcome. Thank you.